Hi, everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from the LPRC. This is the latest in our week. Uh, weekly update series, and uh, as always, joined by uh, our partners here, Tony D'Afrio, Tom Meehan, our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And today we're just going to kind of take a quick trip around the world and discuss uh, things that we're pulling out that seem uh, not just interesting, but hopefully useful. Um, you know, I'm trying to slowly but surely curtail some of the the uh, SARS-CoV-2 slash COVID-19 pandemic news, but still a little bit of relevance here. Uh, and always interesting to look at places like, in this case, San Francisco, California, that's uh, dealing with a myriad of issues. Um, and uh, But one now is that they are double the U.S. average uh, in reported COVID-19 case rates, that it continues to spike, continues to grow. Um, massive infections, evidently, in the San Francisco area. And uh, so a, a lot of articles reporting um, around that and what's going on, the dynamics where it's heavily vaccinated, heavily masking and distancing and isolation crowd. But they are starting to come out and about. Uh, and um, and there, there are people that never were compliant with whatever uh, the latest guidance might be. Um, but that why would now all of a sudden the spiking? And so. It's just interesting, are they a naive population from some other standpoint? So we'll stand by and see what what is this? Is this some kind of case study? But uh, that the fact that the number one uh, uh, infection location, it looks like statistically, is San Francisco Bay Area. Um, the next is, um, <clears throat> again, some overviews about how do we get ahead of this and, and try and, in this case, also curtail this type of pandemic in the future, which we're all for that. Um, but the, looking at different better surveillance techniques and trying to do some deep dives. And even the CDC, I guess, has been doing some self-reflection going back from way before there was the reported cases or suspicions and all the way up till now, trying to understand what went right, what went wrong, what needs to be, still be understood, which is probably most of it. Um, yeah, but understanding that probably better surveillance uh, across the globe, better surveillance in certain areas. Um, we, we know that they, that that uh, it was learned that maybe doing some sewage monitoring and things like that, uh, but they're trying to look at representative surveys because most people are not getting tested, and testing is a critical part, and we talked about before, if any of us are doing home testing and we see that we are positive or we're not positive according to the test, um, then we're probably not going to report or do anything about it specifically to the government, the CDC and the FDA and uh, the state and county health authorities and so on are, are probably not going to know one way or the other unless we go to a physician and then they're bound to report it. <clears throat> so just uh, interesting how to get better testing, but maybe through representative surveys like we're all aware of and in our area of criminology and 
loss prevention, asset protection. Uh, we're, you know, we all fill out surveys to try and understand. We all strive to, to ensure that the population of interest that we're, that we're interested in, in other words, the population is represented in those that complete our survey. So, um, if we get a survey that's not representative, then it's not really worth the time. Uh, it could give us some indicators, but <clears throat> directionally, but that's where it is. So better surveys, more complete surveys, broader surveys. So you'll, you'll see that probably in the future, along with what they talk about, sewage monitoring, uh, antiviral uptake. Our physicians, what are they uh, what are they prescribing that might be not just for COVID or whatever, but what is what are there patterns or something with infectious diseases? That's what they're interested. We're all interested in. Uh, we know that acute uh uh, and, and sometimes persistent illnesses are certainly critical, can be deadly and debilitating, but um, it's the infectious diseases we're talking about here today. Um, but looking at, uh, at prescription patterns uh, along with representative surveys and then what testing data are available and then finally sewage and other monitoring so that we maybe will have earlier warning and be able to get ahead of these things and not go into panic lockdowns and other things like that. Masking is probably going to continue. Uh, sporadically or in specific areas, certainly with individuals that are uh, they're immune immunocompromised or more vulnerable to get serious disease or worse, uh, or if they are infected, are more likely to infect somebody who is highly compromised and it would be dangerous. So, you know, I think all of us never wanted to wear masks, don't like wearing masks, but there are times when some of us are out there going to wear masks and should wear masks. Uh, but if we're going to mask, it sounds like uh, a KN95 or N95, even better, uh, and maybe even with some other mask helping that. So uh, stay tuned on all that. The next part being, I guess, again, we've mentioned this multiple times, better multiviral testing for RSV, for influenza, as well as coronavirus. There's another virus is to understand um, what what is the individual, what do we have um, and what should we know about it? Again, if that's better reported, now we'll be ahead of some of these these problems. And of course, we go on and we won't go through it this week, all the vaccine development to come up with something that's much more effective, more persistent um, than uh, what we've got right now, which are proving highly effective to serious disease, but not uh, very persistent necessarily. Uh, time will tell um, and certainly not uh, highly effective against infection prevention. So um we'll next turn to uh let's go over to lprc and take a look at you know again last week um was a wild one for me anyway from a travel standpoint but getting the opportunity to go to chicago and uh work closely with the ceo summit from nax the national association of convenience stores um uh, you know a lot of top flight highly capable very intelligent uh leaders of uh, some of these very su highly successful um, convenience store chains, getting to talk with them, listen to them, and then talk with them about uh, a little bit about robbery and other issues they've got. But mostly the focus was on the harm that comes from uh, panhandling, from aggressive street behavior, um, the the intimidation that can occur from uh, behaviors that are not uh, normal shopping behaviors. And this is nothing new. Um, we've known as scientists for, for years and years that when one or more people are not doing uh, acting in a certain place or space uh, as that space is designed for. If it's a shopping environment, you're either not working or shopping or delivering there, um, that can put others off. It, it, 
that obviously we're hardwired to be concerned and to, for self-protection and preservation. And, um, and so it's intimidating, particularly it looks like in surveys uh, for females. Um, so encampments that impede uh, individuals and impede entry or are intimidating. Uh, and so an individual is going to make a U-turn, not go in there or not come back. Um, individuals are collapsed or passed out in the doorways or entry exit ways, um, not only creating a fire hazard, but precluding people coming in and out and um, even wanting to go in. And then we looked at imagery of uh, people collapsed on the floor, uh, defecating on the aisles on the floor, passed out in restrooms, um, overdose and passing away in the restrooms. Um, and, and uh, a lot of infections that have occurred, uh, a lot of san unsanitary conditions. I mean, horrific conditions around some of these places. Um, so, you know, what's the bigger issue? What are options and ways to work on this? How can retailers support the community, that neighborhood, but also um, take care of their customers and employees so that they want and will shop and work there? Um, a lot of good feedback. Uh, I think there's a possibility of more of these convenience store chains joining the uh, LPRC community, getting involved in some of the research is what I heard um, as well as with NACS overall. Uh, so stay tuned. Another good adventure over to Charlotte, North Carolina, to the uh, LP Foundation Town Hall event. Um, there were a lot of uh, loss prevention practitioners, asset protection, a lot of solution partners, a lot of good dialogue, um, re-engaging after being holed up for so long, uh, a little bit like what we saw at Relo, where people were just excited to be out and about. And um, we had the opportunity to learn from some very learned people, Oscar uh, from Target Corporation, Rick Peck from TJX, um, and, and several others uh, in the room. A lot of personal engaging. Uh, I was able with Terry Sullivan to go through some uh, excellent research, some of the of a lot of excellent research conducted by Dr. Corey Lowe on the LPRC team um, and engage around looking at organized retail crime, uh, what are we learning about it? What are helpful things that we can know and do? The theme that we're sort of developing here that I talked a little bit about there in Charlotte was, you know, first and foremost, we've got to get better at protecting our own merchandise, our own goods uh, in our supply chain and in our stores um, before we, uh, you know, as a first step. That's the first, that's what feeds the problem is, is uh, boosters stealing or committing fraud Others committing fraud in there. Sometimes this even becomes violent. And so how do we get better at in-store production? Um, to that end, you know, Corey is also doing a lot of research, we all know, on product protection. The Product Protection Summit is this June. Um, we'll also be talking about the National Retail Security Survey. Some of the revamps we're doing and enhancements in year one will continue to enhance and improve. Uh, year two, uh, also work on the Organized Retail Crime Study all for the national and with the National Retail Federation. Um, and so we're going to be learning through the Product Protection Summit and then through some of these surveys more and more and getting deeper and deeper into what seems to be working and what doesn't or what are opportunities to learn more. Um, the next part we're looking at in ORC is after improving and enhancing our in own in-store protection. And this really ties to me directly into the next one, and that is building the partnerships, better and stronger partnerships with each other, which retailers are notoriously good at, particularly on the ORC front, ORC investigators working together or working with law enforcement, but even getting better with educational programs. LP Foundation uh, has been working on one. The Broward County Sheriff's Office in, in South Florida has been 
administering that program to all frontline supervisors, uh, to all patrol during their in-service training, uh, to all F field training officers, FTOs, um, FT, you know, in their case, uh, FTDs, deputy sheriffs, field training deputies. And so trying to roll out and help them understand the real harm created by organized retail crime, how to discriminate uh, a probable boosting situation versus an, uh, what we hate to say, but an ordinary or non-ORC shoplifting event. Um, and then the second level is working with prosecutors, again, helping them understand the real harm created individually, the people there from these crimes that work and shop there to that place that's being victimized and wiped out. Uh, how they lose customers because the good customers come in and they've been wiped out of what they came for um, by boosters, by organized retail crime events, um, helping all of us understand that and then starting to do some pre-planning. OK, how might we do this? How might we do that? What, are, what makes a good case in this jurisdiction? And we know that each and every of almost 19,000 law enforcement agencies have different policies and sometimes within different districts or zones or beats they might have that or um, precincts. So uh, how do we get more coordination, more pre-planning? And again, the same thing with the prosecutors, the state attorneys or the uh, district attorneys, um, as they're called in different areas. And um, how do we help them get better up to speed, get more adept at spotting and, and more effective at reporting and prosecuting? Um, and how can we support all that with better and better uh, evidence, which goes to the next one. And that is working away on getting more sources of positive identification of offenders on site at that time, uh, more facial recognition and feature matching across the individuals, uh, different features, biological, biometric features, um, including face and ears and arms and hands and gait, uh, feet, also things like clothing or other items of use, uh, their vehicle, make, model, color, other, uh, you know, stickers or toolboxes or whatever might be there damage to them. Um, also things like uh, their digital signatures from their smart devices or the Bluetooth signatures from their wearables, things like that, so that we're getting more and more evidence and tying in the exact offender to that exact place and time and crime event. Um, and then the next level, moving to where we're starting to create stronger linkages of that individual to other crimes, that individual to other offenders and those offenders to crimes and all of the above to those specific places and times and crime events to help support better continuing criminal enterprise prosecutions. Things like RICO, racketeering influence, corrupt organization types of uh, criminal and civil proceedings that can take place. Um, so that we're not bound to dollar amounts that are being taken, but rather the crime and the systematic crime and the harms that, that, that these offenders are creating for their victims. Um, and so those were some of the things we talked about. And finally, the ribbon on the top is helping create standardized narratives um, that include the, all the elements of the crime. You know, normally there's three to six elements of any crime that have to be demonstrated, supported with evidence. Those need to be clearly, concisely articulated in a report um, and the individuals involved clearly and concisely identified as committing uh, each and every one of those elements, uh, proving uh, or supporting the idea that this was intentional as well as the act. So, you know, those are the things we talked about getting better and better that and all of them support each other. If we're better taking care of our own merchandise, 
the prosecutors and the, the popular narrative out there and even law enforcement officers are less likely to point the finger or be reluctant because we're so readily victimized and don't seem to be doing anything about it. Um, they're having to clean up. So uh, that helps reduce our losses. It helps us make a stronger and better case for strong partnerships. We are crime victims here. We're not here and creating the problem. We are being victimized. Uh, but there are things we're doing about that by creating stronger narratives, collecting better identification information of the offenders and other linkages, helping support all that. Pull these things together with that strong narrative, uh, a nice tight case. We're all helping ourselves. We're getting more respect and credibility, and we think things can be more positive. Um, the LP Foundation, Clear, and others are making a strong call for there to be sort of a national guiding uh, retail task force that helps to organize and orchestrate and deliver on some of these things. The foundation on the training component, um, others, LPRC on research and, and, and third-party credible uh, rigorous information to feed into this um, and others that can get involved. So stay tuned on all that, but uh, we're excited to be engaged and involved uh, with what's happening there. I, another call out again, remember, we do have the Product Protection Summit in June. We've got the Supply Chain Protection Summit and the Violent Crime Summit, I believe, will be in July, August timeframe, possibly or even maybe probably in Philadelphia. Uh, the LPRC Innovation Working Groups S3 um, SOC and Sensor Summit to be announced the date in Gainesville in August uh, of this year. And then, uh, of course, the big granddaddy of all for our LPRC community members, and that's the LPRC Impact October 3rd through 5th. Go to lpresearch.org to find out more. With that, let me turn it over to uh, Tom Meehan. Tom, if you can take it away. Yeah, thank you, Reed. And I, I think uh, you know, just talking about the, I unfortunately missed the town hall because I was at RFID Journal, couldn't be in two places. And um, I actually taped last week live from RFID Journal and the crowd was a uh, big, I mean, it was a big Boston, very excited to be together. There were some international folks that couldn't travel uh, based on some COVID challenges, but the attendance was, was large. And one of the key things, and again, a little bit repetitive, but I think it warrants it, uh, was there was talk about retail asset protection or RFID journal, D journal. And I've gone many years and it, it really, while it sometimes came up, was not a, a topic that you would you know hear very regularly. And um, Joe Cole from Macy's, did one of the keynote presentations and talked about organized retail time and talked about, you know, RSC and how you could use it from investigations and the digitization uh, that retailers are going through and how RFID can help in many different facets. And I thought uh, it was really great to see Joe talk. Obviously, I've known Joe for, you know, 20 years, so it's always good to see people that you know up there talking. But the day before, during um, a, another keynote session, they actually talked about organized retail crime. So you have folks that would not normally talk about organized retail, non-asset protection folks talking about organized retail crime, talking out about the extended benefit of introducing technology and taking advantage of sensors to do uh, beyond what was originally thought of. And so very exciting to see that and hear that. And I know we, uh, the LPRC, have been talking about kind of the value and the ROI in, in more than one facet, but as we continue to talk about the hyper digitization in retail, one of the projects that we're working on 
uh, through the innovation group is just integration and how you get all of your equipment to work together. But it's more than that. It's also how you can take full advantage of all of those digital sensors and all that information for the greater good of the retail establishment, not just for the profit and asset protection piece. So thought it was really good to see that. We'll probably continue to talk about that because I think we'll see writing uh, around that coming up. So wanted to just touch on some kind of risk in cybersecurity and things that are out there in the news. One, uh, the UK Information Commission Office fined Clearview AI $9.4 million for violating its data privacy protection laws and ordered the facial recognition company to delete all of the UK residents' data. And prior to that, in recent months, there have been many privacy watchdog groups in Australia, France, and Italy who have also ordered Clearview AI to delete data uh, on its residents. And this is kind of one of those things that I know um, actually during impact and a, a couple last couple events, there was talk about uh, facial recognition and um, you know, taking my opinion out of this. It, it, there isn't a, basically a standardized approach of how it's regulated throughout the United States, where in the UK um, or the EU, there are much, much more definitive privacy guidelines and rules. So when you read these these stories, it's important to note that there is regulatory bodies behind it. It's not just um, a government attacking a company. There, there's GDRP and there are other things that kind of doesn't what can be done. They kind of define what can be done and what can't be done. And in certain uh, EU countries, there are even more restrictive rules around video specifically. So while I don't think this is necessarily going to follow suit in the United States, I do think that uh, Clearview AI has been in the news. It's also important to note that everybody, including um, most of the publications that wrote about this, so protocol wrote about this naked uh, naked security this was all over the you know in that cyber and it space um there was actually in writing they thought that the fines would be much more significant and the penalties would be much more specific in the united states um back in 2020 you saw some class action shoots bought against clearview ai from the state of illinois um and basically it really was focused on the biometric privacy data laws. And so today I'm don't I'm not a hundred percent sure that I'm accurate, but I know Illinois, uh, California, and I believe it's Maryland have some sort of biometric data privacy laws. I think that it's important to note that most of those laws, with the exception of California, are specific to private companies and not public. Uh, law enforcement agencies. So we'll continue to follow this. I think Clearview AI is an amazing platform. You know, so from, uh, you know, obviously I think the folks that are listening to this are biased. Um, in some case, uh, you know, I think if you're using facial recognition to prevent harm or per, or to solve crime, it makes perfect sense. But I also completely understand the European Union and how their laws work and the way they were written. So I'll continue to follow it. It's something that I've been following for a long time. And I think retailers, um, and I'll make a general statement, and have tried face recognition in some uh, form or fashion, not everybody, and we're still working through what that means. We know it, We know that it helps solve crimes. We know that um, we can cite real uh, information to show horrific crimes that are actually helped bring um, to the forefront for, you know, with face recognition. And to that note, I want to just comment that, you know, when we talk about the legal side of it, Recently, you may have seen a headline, um, and as the listeners know, probably 
uh, I volunteer for a human trafficking company to try to help solve human trafficking through the data and intelligence side of it. And there was a 15 year old that was kidnapped uh, in Texas at a basketball game. And it was through facial recognition that she was found and, and actually reunited with her family 10 days later. So when we talk about the privacy concerns, um, I hear stories and think of stories like that and say that, you know, there has to be a scale of privacy versus protecting people. And in that case, I'm confident um, that uh, it would not have been solved the way it was. It was a uh, not a public entity. It was a private entity that helps find missing children that actually found the facial recognition through sex ads. So a horrific example, but an example of how important facial recognition is. And that's a live, very timely, real example of in that circumstance, if it didn't exist, there's a likelihood that the this person would never have been found. So um, continue to monitor it. And I'll continue to say there has to be a balance, of course, like everything else. But it's important to not just totally take this uh, as this is a a bad technology, or I believe at one of the LPRC events, there was a public official who said creepy. And I often challenge as soon as someone starts that way, because um, technology in general can be misused or used appropriately. And I think a, in some cases, facial recognition gets a bad rap because of what it can do, not what it does. So just moving along through the, the you know, the next stage of Netflix is going to start uh, working on a live streaming platform. Uh, this is going to be used for live voting and unscripted content and competitor shows. Why am I talking about this here? Because we continuously talk about social media and the internet and what the impact it has on our day-to-day -day lives. And um, this is just another example of how technology is evolving the way we consume data. Uh, it's a little early to say what, what that means for all of us. You know, I'm always very, very curious when I read a statement of this is what is the public uh, interaction going to look like? Something certainly to, to look after. I know that when we think of live streaming or when I think of live streaming, I think of you know, the, the TikTok and the YouTube and the Twitches of the world where we know um, we've seen criminal acts being live streamed, uh, some very tough acts. So while I don't think that will happen here, I, I'm very curious to see what it means uh, for the the live streaming industry and how it changes uh, what what occurs uh, in the Twitter kind of in sphere. We've been talking about Elon Musk and his uh, acquisition efforts with Twitter, um, as probably most expected with Elon. There's been a change uh, and more information that's come out with Twitter again, where Elon is, is asking for reduction in price because of the amount of fake accounts. So. It's estimated that you know four to five percent of accounts um, are a, a, a nece not necessarily real. They're either bot-driven or duplicate. Uh, this number is very hard to kind of uh, I put your finger on it. It comes up often in any type of social media um, of what what is a real account. And then you know there's this kind of quasi argument of well maybe a person created the account with an alter ego or, or a is that actually a, not a real account? Uh, is is it a real account is, if it's not used? Um, I have multiple Twitter accounts, one for business, one for personal, and then to monitor news. So I'm, I, I often say, you know, me as an individual, I think I have six different accounts that I've set up very specifically to do different things. Are those five of those deemed fake? Uh, because they're not fake, uh, they're just used differently. So 
why am I talking about this at the LPRC on the LPRC pod crime science podcast? Because uh, we have the Fusion Net and we have a lot of uh, folks that are part of the, the LPRC community that use social media to monitor for events. And I, I personally think uh, for events, both uh, good and bad, I personally think this is a great way to monitor. Twitter happens to be one of the ones that I use often uh, in an active shooting environment, in a civil unrest environment, because people uh, use it, news media uses it as well. So it begs to kind of often talk, what we often talk about is how do you validate if you have 5%? Now we might say 5% fake is not a big number, but what does that mean for the way that we monitor uh, uh, live events. I'm not sure it has any impact because using my own example, I have multiple accounts um, that I do use. I don't deem any of them fake. Um, I don't even think they have aliases as much as I name them things around what I'm using them for. And that has more to do with a method of collect the way I collect data. I think that when you think fake account, it, it usually is a bot or a, an, a software driven account. But We'll continue to monitor it. I do actually think it'll affect what we do from a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I think it'll affect the way we gather intelligence, the way we share information. Um, and I know today that in speaking to the member base at the LPRC and the listeners of the podcast that a lot of folks use Twitter to monitor for event-driven. Um, just to, we talk about this a lot too, update and patching. U.S. government actually um, put out a memo around patching uh, around VMware and basically uh, VMware is, a, is a, a company that probably is most commonly known for virtual machine software where you can run multiple instances of an operating system on one machine. So basically it creates virtual partitions with operating systems. They also have a cloud computing division. There are a lot more than that. Um, and they did have two uh, vulnerabilities that were identified. It's important to note that these vulnerabilities required access to the network. So they weren't uh, vulnerabilities where you could get into a network. If you were already on the network, it, it, it created a, a, a hole, if you will. And the US government took a hard stance and basically said that, you know, if you don't patch these, you cannot use these services. Um, and they actually uh, did a pretty good job of depicting exactly what they wanted and basically it was find it and find the, the whole patch the hole and then let them know and I'm, I'm not giving you the exact information but why it's interesting is because they publicly put out hey if you don't do this we're going to remove remove or block these services from activating or you being used i think we're going to see a trend of this both in the government and the private sector where um, companies are going to take a much harder stance on vulnerabilities I think it has to happen because in today's day, uh, age, you have multiple vulnerabilities that pop up often. And in some cases, they are a little bit challenging to fix or to get patches for. I This is a, a very clear message that you have the US government, I think you'll see financial institutions, retailers, and eventually private, private folks, again, having the ability to say, we're not gonna use this service anymore, which in turn, a lot of times means we're not gonna pay for this service anymore. So. I, I suspect we'll see changes of certain uh, terms of services and things of that nature coming in the future as this continues to evolve and we know it will. And um, I don't think it will ever go away as we become more digitized, we'll continue to see these type of vulnerabilities at a pace that's probably um, much, much greater than what we're used to uh, seeing today. 
Why don't you just uh, kind of talk about a story about a, a an individual that was selling passwords uh, online. So the, this was a 28-year-old who was originally from the Ukraine um, and then was arrested in Poland in late 2020. He was uh, sentenced to four years in prison um, and he was extradited uh, to a Florida district court in 2021 and charged with traffic, uh, trafficking of unauthorized like, access data and trafficking of compromised passwords. So this is, an, this is a good example of um, where everybody works together. And I think what you will see here is you will continue to see some of these cases where these hackers are being uh, picked up while they're on vacation. Sometimes they're really on vacation. Sometimes I think it's done through back channels of intelligence. So they may be in a non-extradi uh, um, country or a country that doesn't cooperate with U.S. Um, law enforcement. Um, and lo and behold, when they're traveling, they're picked up. A lot of times we know who these individuals are and we're just really waiting to to get them uh, and pick them up. I think it's it's a really, it, while this case is not substantial in, in dollar amount and what it is, although it was a significant amount of passwords, I think it's really important to note that the Department of Justice is doing exactly what it says it's doing since uh, the fall of 2021, which we reported here. Um, they would, in fact, be treating these hacking instances at a much higher degree from a crime. Uh, and so, therefore, going after some of the cases that before would be somewhat of the victimless crime piece. So I think it's a, a really good win for all of us. Uh, and it's important to note that um, we're going to continue to see these things. Last but certainly not least, we're, we're seeing a tremendous amount of, of uh, information around retail and inflation, Walmart earnings, Target's earnings. Um, and I think it's, you know, this is, the Wall Street Journal had a whole series of articles, um, the, New York Post, or the, the New York Post, the New York Times, um, pretty much every major, the Washington Post, all the times they all, pretty much every major news, news agency in the U.S. and actually globally reported on you know, how investors dump shares of Walmart and Target um, on, on, you know, the change earnings reports. I think th there's a couple things here that are really, really important to, to note. One is that retail sales were actually up in the month of April. Uh, and this is kind of the, the curve of inflation of retailers trying to manage price increases um, and, and as well as short staffed and some of the, the higher uh, product supply chain and employee costs that while you can we 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 all can predict it's extremely extremely volatile um, and so while I'm not going to get into the details of the article there was one thing that I thought was very very important to talk about is that consumer spending is uh, still at a, an all-time high it, it is shifting more towards um, grocery and foods and things of that nature but it's still high um, I think it's also important to note that when you had some of these reports, there were some real clear winners in, in it where um, there were still there were still companies that had gains. Also, the Fed, um, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Fed did a report on consumers in the late fall having more money than ever. So we talk about the pandemic and all of these things that are occurring on the negative sides. But. Some of that cash that was infused, in, you know, through the stimulus checks and through some of, um, you know, the pay increases and 
the the hiring frenzy that's occurring today. I think we still have 11 million open jobs. So you think about the inflation and, and some of the changes that are occurring today, we still have a, a high percentage of open jobs. And I'm not predicting whether there'll be a recession or not, but the Fed continuously says that people have more cash in hand than they've had before. They're just spending it differently, this evolution. And then I, you know, on my other side, outside of retail, I do a lot in the financial sector. And it's important to note that today's inflation is nothing like inflation in the past. If you go back to the late 60s, early 70, uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, we did not have hyperdigitization. We did not have the global economy that we have now. We did not have uh, the level of pandemic, although we did have a small pandemic at that time. Uh, and we also did not have the, the war in the Ukraine. So when you add all of those things together, it exasperates. And we're not actually, in, you know, actually sure the financial analysts out there are up, uh, calling for, you know, doom and gloom. But there is also a whole other subset of people saying that this could be an adjustment based on the hyper digitization. So we'll continue to follow that. I, this is something that I'm, I'm heavily involved in, again, on the financial sector side. But uh, it, much like what Reed, Tony and I have talked about since the beginning of this podcast, there aren't necessarily history books to to relate to. Uh, and using the pandemic as as an example, you can't really compare the coronavirus um, to what happened with the Spanish or Indian flu because we were in a totally different uh, geopolitical climate. We were in a totally different um, travel climate. You know, air travel has changed, digitization has changed, and it's very very similar. Uh, with the the hyperinflation that we're starting to see of that when you look at the history books, while you might have one or two of the events that are occurring, uh, we've never had the level of events and the way information changes and even just how quickly the market changes that we do today. So uh, when we read some of these stories, I, I encourage you when you're reading the news about stocks to read further in and hear about some of the successes that are occurring at the same time because as we all know it's very easy to read the negative but understanding why um, the earnings of some of these companies were affected and i'll use and i'll, I'll end with this it's uh, the amazon you know having the the first quarter since 2015 uh, down uh it's a roughly seven billion dollar loss it's important to note that almost all of that loss was associated with an investment that Amazon made in an electric vehicle company. Almost dollar per dollar that loss matched. But when you read the article at face value, your assumption is a whole bunch of other things. But when you really dig deep, you start to realize that, oh, okay, so if that investment didn't happen, um, that they wouldn't have that loss. Now, it doesn't change the fact that the loss occurred, but the general assumption might be it's because of inflation, because of cost change, because of supply chain not because there was a, a hedged investment that didn't turn out the way it planned. And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. Thank you, Tom. Uh, great updates from both you and Reed. Uh, this week I'm traveling through Europe, so let me start with some updates from uh, here. First, interesting news from Zara, which is part of the Inditex chain of nearly 7,000 uh, primarily apparel stores and based in Spain. This update is from Forbes. Zara in the UK started charging a fee of £1.95 or equivalent to $2.39 to return merchandise bought online via mail. 
the fast fashion uh, retailer reportedly instituted the charge for environmental reasons. Zara deducts the refund charge from the refund. Um, customers buying items online can still return them for free in stores. Mailed returns in the U.S. are still free for up to 30 days post-purchase. Consumer expectations around free returns have, have maybe somewhat lower these days due to their environmental uh, sympathies. And a recent study from uh, Cyclone found that two-thirds of U.S. consumers are willing to pay extra when returning a parcel to subsidize greener carrier options. Uh, also this week in an online discussion, um, some of the experts from the Retail uh, Wire Brain Trust said return fees are likely to become more common among retailers, although the rationalizations may differ. Now, in terms of online returns, they've been rising and they are a margin on killers for online selling. A recent Pitney Bowes survey of U.S. online retailers found returns cost retailers an average of 21% of their order value. And the National Retail Federation found that nearly 21% of goods bought online were returned in 2021, up from uh, just over 18% in 2020. The article did point out that Zara risks disappointing customers who gain confidence in making an online purchase when they see free shipping uh, and returns uh, uh, basically changing. A uh, Power Review's 2021 study found that consumers indicating free shipping was 96% and free returns 76% were deemed as important consideration when shopping online. Switching topics, some also very interesting news from Europe is that Lidl, which is part of the Swartz Group, reached 100 billion euros in sales. This news is from the Retail Detail uh, EU website, and it's interesting that there are, were already a top 10 global retailers in revenue and points to the continued growth of the low-cost grocery model. Congratulations uh, to Little on this important milestone. The retail sales set, uh, said in their latest earnings that in sales increased nearly 5% to 100.8 billion euros on the previous year. Uh, the increase in turnover is partly due to the, in the fact that they continue to open new stores and they opened 100 in the recent uh, financial year. Incidentally, 100.8 uh, euros is roughly 108 billion US dollars. Uh, I, I follow the sector closely because there are two low gross, uh, low cost grocery retailers in the global top 10. The other is Aldi very successful. So this is a sector to watch because they've disrupted uh, multiple uh, countries in terms of coming in and being aggressive with their low-cost model. Switching uh, topics and going back to the U.S., interesting this week, Amazon, um, and this news is from Reuters, has opened its first physical apparel retail store. The store is called Amazon Style. It's located in Los Angeles. And it will use machine learning technology to help customers find clothes and personalize recommendations. Customers shopping on the Amazon app will also have the option to try out their selections at the physical store and be notified when a fitting room 
is available. So again, this link of physical to digital, Amazon is exploiting very heavily, and that uh, will continue, I, I think, for Amazon as a differentiator going forward. But also very, very interesting that they continue to open physical stores, which again kills the mantra that physical stores are dying and everything is going online, especially as we just talked about the profitability and the cost of returns a few minutes ago. Let me go back to the U.S. to end this week and talk about Walmart. This is again from the Retail Detail EU website. And again, very interesting news from Walmart. Walmart is set to be the first major retailer to use drones for deliveries. The supermarket chain says it is that by the year end, some, and this is an astounding number, 4 million American households will be able to receive parcels by air. The households are spread across six different states in parts of Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Texas, Utah, and Virginia, and customers could receive more than a, a million parcels a year by drone. And this is a, as reported in The Guardian. Initially, these orders will be small with a maximum weight of 10 pounds. During the earlier test, the drones mainly delivered household items, um, but Walmart sees a lot more possibility. The potential range covers up to 100,000 different products in numerous categories from snacks to batteries. So there's a lot of upside in terms of where uh, this goes next. The drones are immediately controlled by operators from partner drone up and will land in customers driveways or front yards. Walmart said it will charge a delivery fee of $3.99 for delivery. It will be the first large scale delivery drone program in the U.S., um, but it'll be interesting to watch. I actually spent some time with Drone Up at the Big Show, and it actually made it as one of my 11 trends that I spotted in terms of uh, uh, 2022 and beyond. So it'll be interesting to watch where this technology goes next. And then again, just to close, uh, remember that LPRC is the place to test many of these new technology ideas for both those green and red shoppers. So join us. And with that, good evening from Europe, and let me turn it over to Reed. All right, thanks so much, Tom. Thanks so much, Tony, for all the insights and, and amazing information. Um, that's what we need. We wanna be informed here. Um, and I, I wanted to do a quick follow-up too on looking at the different AI technologies and um, in particular computer vision and then the facial recognition or feature matching components. And I mentioned in mine for ORC and Tom uh, spent some quality time talking about some of the lawsuits and some of the concerns out there, but also talked about the high side, you know, the, what's going on and why it's so important. And all of us want to guard each other's privacy, even though we, you know, you look at the research literature and understand even through our own personal experience that privacy is is different for each and every one of us, our perception that it's by and large transient. It can change and uh, in a moment it can change through our lifespan, um, but also it's highly transactional. And so, you know, if we purchase something online, we very readily give up a lot of personal information every single transaction. It's either already stored with the retailer or others that we're dealing with. Uh, or we're voluntarily providing it each and every transaction. Um, but there are many cases we've talked about too as well with uh, the RFID transponders on our vehicles to conveniently and more rapidly go through 
toll areas on to travel uh, and to not burn as much fuel uh, to get to places on time or quicker. Um, and, and it really goes on. We could all think of dozens and dozens of ways that we make that VX or value exchange where we exchange some bit of privacy uh, for convenience, for entertainment, uh, and, and in this case, for safety and security of us and our loved ones or others. So, um, and I know that in working with some of these law enforcement detectives, and we all are working pretty closely with them, as well as the civilian uh, investigators and others uh, out there trying to safeguard people and places, um, that some of these technologies are literally saving lives. We heard Tom talk about uh, recovering uh, a poor thing that was abducted. Uh, that's not, unfortunately, unusual, uh, but that's how uh, this type of recognition technology is helping surgeons find, locate, and treat much more, much earlier tumors and other situa- other events or situations or pathologies that are helping us save and recover those that have been kidnapped. But also, I'm hearing case after case after case where some uh, an individual or crew that are committing robberies uh, or are now being linked to those places like we talked about earlier in this in this particular episode. So there are a lot of good things that are happening. Uh, serial rapists are now being arrested and taken out of circulation so they can't harm, they can't victimize another single woman. Um, uh, not one more woman out there. Uh, we know of murderers and others that are being taken out off the streets because of leveraging some of these new powerful technologies that are available. So whether it's our fingerprint, it's our it's a, our signature, if it's our license plate, if it's something about our biological features uh, that put us in that place and time that match us up, or in this case, even can find an elderly person that's lost um, or is wandering or somebody that's in need of a vet medication that's got, that has disappeared, or in this case, a child, or in, uh, when we talked about, you heard Tom talk about um, some of the what's going on with the transportation of people uh, against their will. Um, and so locating these people is proving powerful. So we're not here to advocate for any particular technology or manufacturer or even any practice right now. But we do think the, the most ethical thing we can do is, is strive within reason to safeguard vulnerable people. So uh, I'll get down off my uh, high horse here and uh, want to thank each and every one of you as well as Tony Tom, our producer, uh, Diego Rodriguez, and say, stay safe and stay in touch with us. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.